Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible's open up to the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to invite you to be getting your Bible open up as well to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to begin there in just a moment. In fact, we'll be there quite a bit this morning, and so you'll be helped tremendously by following along in the Word of God. It's great to have the opportunity this morning to stand before you and to present some things from the Word of God, some things that I hope will be of help and benefit to you as we consider, I believe this morning, some things that have just some really significant and eternal implications to them, things that will help us in a, in a big kind of way as we navigate our way through this world and ultimately try to make our place and make our home eternally in heaven. Do you have, do you have maybe a favorite last line? from a book or from a play or maybe from a famous speech or maybe a favorite last line from a movie. You know, just some kind of a, a final concluding statement that was uttered that just kind of served to, to just kind of summarize everything. Or maybe it just provided a, a big bang. Just made that just kind of go home with just a powerful punch and punctuated it all at the end. There's certainly been a lot of famous last lines that have been written and spoken throughout history. For example, what about that final line from Shakespeare's most popular play? For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. Or what about Charles Dickens' classic novel, A Christmas Carol, which ends with Tiny Tim exclaiming, God bless us, everyone. Or what about that really powerful line that concluded President Lincoln's Gettysburg Address? That government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Man, that's a, that's a powerful way to end a speech. Or how about my personal favorite last line from the movie Back to the Future when Doc Brown puts his shades on and he says, Rhodes... Where we're going, we don't need roads. You know, all of those are great closing lines that really help to kind of bring together and punctuate all of the words and all of the events that preceded those final statements. But I'm going to suggest to you this morning that none of those, none of those are as great or as powerful or as epic as this famous line written by Solomon, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I don't believe that anything is ever going to top those incredible words that are recorded for us in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. And really, what makes the ending of Ecclesiastes just so epic is that it draws a conclusion to a book that is seeking to answer one of the biggest questions of life. Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is life all about? And that is a big question, isn't it? And yet in just two short verses, Solomon is able to summarize what, what all of this is all about. And this morning, this morning I want to attempt to unpack all of that. And I want us to better understand all of that so that ultimately we can live that. 
The game plan this morning really isn't all that complicated. We want to understand, first of all, how it is that Solomon arrived at this famous conclusion. We really can't fully appreciate the ending unless we know some stuff about the beginning. And then secondly, what we want to do is we want to extrapolate the two musts that this passage sets before us. The two things that we must be doing in order for life to have meaning. And then finally this morning, Solomon is going to give us, kind of as a bonus, he's going to give us two big motivators that will help us to make sure that we are actually doing those two musts. Are, are you ready for that? Are you ready to see what it is that we can learn from this epic conclusion to the book known as Ecclesiastes? Maybe we ought to begin just by thinking a little bit about how it is that Solomon got here. You know, Solomon says there in verse 13, he says, The end of the matter. All has been heard, okay. Well, what exactly is the matter at hand? And furthermore, what precisely have we heard? Well, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to chapter 1. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, here's kind of just the premise for the entire book. And really the book reads more like like a journal or like a diary. These are Solomon's thoughts. It's kind of a running tally of his observations as he sets out on this quest, a quest that he describes in chapter 1 and in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Solomon says there's something puzzling here and I'm on a mission to figure out the meaning of life. That expression under heaven or in other places throughout the book will be the expression under the sun. It is used more than 30 times throughout Ecclesiastes and it is used to describe life on earth. What is this life all about? And so what begins in chapter 1 is this grand experiment to see and to test and to try virtually everything that life has to offer. Let's just see if any of the things that life offers has any real, true, lasting meaning. And so, for example, in chapter 1 and in verse 16, Solomon tries the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge getting an education, maybe maybe learning as much as we can. Maybe that's what life is all about. In chapter 2, he tries pleasure and entertainment and hobbies. and Well, maybe that's just what life really needs to be filled up with. Solomon then tries to find meaning in work, in his job, the labors of his hands, the toil that he describes again and again. Maybe that's what life is all about. And in chapter 5, he tries the accumulation of wealth and power and glory and prestige. And maybe that's why we're here. Maybe that's the point of our existence. Over and over, Solomon just makes himself kind kind of the human guinea pig for this grand experiment to see if any of those things provide real purpose, real fulfillment for life. And do you know what the final verdict was? Go back to chapter 1 again. In chapter 1 and in verse 2, Solomon actually just kind of begins the journal by just letting the cat out of the bag right at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 2, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. 
the reason that Solomon arrives at that grand conclusion at the end of chapter 12 is because he found, first of all, that all of this other stuff, all this other stuff was just vanity. That word vanity occurs more than 30 times in the book. And it literally means vapor or breath. Solomon uses that word to describe figuratively that which does not last. That that, that which is ultimately futile and worthless and vain. And as you journey along with Solomon, you read the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes, and as he tries a little bit of this, and he tries a little bit of that, and he tries everything in between, By the time you get to chapter 12 and in verse 8 where Solomon says one more time, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, you start to realize, yeah, he's exactly right. It is all vanity. All of the pursuits of this temporal earth, they are worthless and vain. They don't last. It's all just like a vapor. It's like a puff of steam that appears for a little while and then poof. It's gone. You stop and think about it. Think about the things that Solomon tried. Life cannot be all about gaining knowledge and wisdom and education and those sorts of things because as Solomon points out in chapter 1 and verse 18, that'll just make you miserable. It'll just drive you crazy. Or think about this. Life can't all be all about having fun and entertainment and recreating. Solomon points out in chapter 2 and verse 11, eventually you're going to get tired of all of that stuff. And furthermore, life can't be all about money, accumulating money, having money, flaunting money, spending money. Because as he points out in chapter 5 and in verse 10, enough, enough is never truly enough. You're never going to be satisfied. And life certainly can't be all about work. I know people who are absolute workaholics. Their life is just consumed with their work. And Solomon says it can't be about your toil because one day, chapter 2 verse 21, One day you're going to die. And then everything that you worked for, it's going to be given to and it's going to be enjoyed by someone else. In fact, Solomon's research really caused him to discover that death, death is the great equalizer. He talks about death all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, it is Solomon who very famously says in chapter 12 and in verse 7, to the dust you shall return. And so Solomon finds that all of these things that people then, in fact people even now today, pour their hearts into, the things that people invest so much time and energy in, that ultimately those things are vain. They are vanity because they do not last. Which is why he wants to know that in light of my impending death, what is there that can outlast me? And then, almost in a whisper, Solomon says, I think I found the answer. I think I finally discovered something that isn't vain. I think I finally figured out something that has true, lasting value and meaning. Do you want to know what it is? Chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 9. Solomon says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. 
The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Verse 12, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Solomon says, hey, you don't need to go down to the local library and read 5,000 books. You don't need to go climb to the top of a mountain and find some guru sitting cross-legged up there and he's going to tell you what life is all about. Solomon says, I've got you. I'll tell you how to live. I'll tell you what's most important of all. Verse 13, the end of the matter. After all has been heard, fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon says that, that's the meaning of life. That's what has lasting and eternal value. Can we break that out now? Can we break that out, those two musts that are found in there? There are two essential components that Solomon says for living a meaningful life. First and foremost, first and foremost, Solomon says, he says some stuff about how you need to fear God. That's where everything has to begin. It has to begin with the fear of the Lord. You know, sometimes I'm afraid we... We struggle with defining this idea of fearing God. I mean, after all, we try to teach our kids that, hey, you know, you don't have to be afraid of God. You know, you don't need to be trembling at the thought of God, that God's just out to get you. And, you know, I mean, we emphasize that God is awesome and He has great power and He has just incredible might and so we should. But then, of course, we're very quick to temper that and kind of tone that down by stressing how, how God loves us now He cares for us and how He's so merciful and gracious toward us. Well, which is it? Which side of the equation is God? You know, do we need to be absolutely terrified of God? Shaking and quaking in our boots? Living in absolute dread of Him and what He can do? Or, on the other hand, as some people would like to paint God out to be, is God kind of like just a big teddy bear? And we can hug Him and we can squeeze Him and we can just be totally at ease and calm around Him. Well, maybe to help us with defining this fear God thing, can I invite you to step out of Ecclesiastes for a moment? Would you look in the book of Hebrews? We'll come back to Ecclesiastes in a second. In the book of Hebrews chapter 12, the writer here is trying to urge these Christians not to give up on Christianity, don't return to Judaism. And one of the ways that he's doing that is by reminding these folks of who God is. Our God is hes everlasting. He's never changed. In Hebrews chapter 12, he then says in chapter 12 verse 25, See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. At that time His voice shook the earth. But now He has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Verse 28 now, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That is a passage that speaks about fearing God. 
But I'm going to suggest to you that it's not so much about being just so terrified and so afraid of God that we're afraid to draw near to Him. We're afraid to speak to Him. We're afraid even to hear His voice. No. What that passage speaks of is the importance... It speaks of the importance of taking God seriously. Isn't that what's going on there? Verse 25, don't refuse Him. Listen to what He's saying to you. Verse 26, He's shaken the universe before, but He's done that in order to give us something that is unshakable, a kingdom. Verse 28, so we're invited to come and to worship Him, but we're going to do that in a certain way. We're going to do that with an attitude of reverence and awe. Why? Because verse 29... Because He is a consuming fire. That passage really kind of contains the best of both worlds. That passage, I think, really is driving at this idea of our obligation to take God seriously. You know, sometimes we try to kind of oversimplify the idea of of fear God and we kind of just say that, well, a a mere synonym for that would be respect God. I understand about all that. Make no mistake about it. We are going to respect God. We must respect God. But listen to me. The reason that we respect God is because we take Him seriously. That we understand what it is that He can do and we understand what it is that He is capable of. We understand that His voice, His Word, it carries with it weight and authority. And we understand, unlike so many in our time, that He is real. He is not a figment of our imagination. He is as real as the wood on this podium. And as a result of all of that, we take Him seriously. And yes, if maybe some of that sounds terrifying to you, it should especially if you're not in a right relationship with God. But you know what? Even if you are in a right relationship with God, this attitude, this attitude of taking God seriously, it provides the basis for a right and proper relationship with Him. It is the recognition that He does have the ability to obliterate us. He could destroy me and my soul in eternal hell fire. But you know what? He also has the power to forgive me and to save me and to bring me home into His presence for all of eternity. But either way, I take Him seriously. And isn't that what's missing so much in our society today? A failure to take God seriously? I saw a bumper sticker the other day that said, Heaven won't take me and hell is afraid that I'll take over. Yeah, right. I think that well describes the fundamental reason that our world is just floundering. The reason that our world is just groping in the darkness without a clue. They don't have any idea whatsoever what life is all about. And that's because at the very core, at the fundamental starting point, they don't take God seriously. Solomon says that the beginning of a life that has meaning and direction and purpose is this attitude of reverence and awe and fear for the God who runs the entire universe. Which leads right into that second must that Solomon concludes Ecclesiastes with. And that is, not only must we fear God, but there must be the determination to keep His commandments. That's the biblical language. Maybe the simpler way to say that is we're going to do what He says. Isn't that what's going on there? 
I take God seriously, and so I then do what He tells me. One fellow wrote the following. He said this. He said, An unholy fear of God makes people run away from Him. But a holy fear of God brings them to their knees in submission to Him. And I think that's exactly right, and I like that idea a lot. Because if we do fear the Lord, if we truly take Him seriously, then that means we're going to take seriously what He has said. We're going to treat with reverence His divine Word. And we're again going to be about not just the business of respecting it, we're going to be about the business of doing it. Right attitude, it's a good start, but right attitude must always lead to right actions. And the truth is, if we're not doing what God says, then eh, we might want to rewind. We might want to go back to step one and see if we really are, in fact, taking Him seriously. In fact, that's a question that Jesus asked in the New Testament. Would you jump out of Ecclesiastes again? Look with me in Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, you know, Jesus had a lot of followers, lots of people that followed Him wherever He went, lots of people that were part of those big crowds who came before Him. Well, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says that, yeah, there's lots of people who acknowledge me as Lord, at least in their words and in the things that they say. It sounds like you take me seriously. But what Jesus wanted to do was to confront what he saw as oftentimes just a disconnect in the lives of those very same people. In Luke 6 verse 46, he then asked the question, Luke 6 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? and you don't do what I tell you. You think about this. If somebody came barreling into our parking lot right now, and they jumped out of their car, and they shouted, getting everybody's attention, they said, Hey! Hey, there's a tornado coming! I, I just saw it. It just touched ground over here on the bypass. It's on its way here. It's heading this way. And you then, in response to that, say, Oh, okay. Thanks for letting me know that. I'm going to go take a stroll around the neighborhood right now. This seems like a good time for a walk. Whoa! Whoa, 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 whoa what are you doing? What are you thinking? There's, there's an obvious disconnect there, isn't there? Maybe the problem is, is that you just don't understand about tornadoes and what tornadoes are capable of. Or maybe, maybe it is that you just don't take seriously this one who has come and who has spoken those words and has delivered this warning. Jesus says, if you take me seriously, then that means you're going to then do what I tell you to do. You know, there's a lot of people in our world today who profess faith in God, some kind of faith in God. In fact, there's probably people who are listening to the sound of my voice right now who would profess faith in God and yet their lives don't show it. Their lives show a disconnect between their words and their actions. Their lives are not saying the same thing that their mouths are saying. In fact, think about this in Ecclesiastes. There was a period in Solomon's life when his talk and his walk did not match up. Solomon married a bunch of pagan women. They led him astray, got him involved in idolatry. And so Solomon is actually speaking from some first-hand experience when he says that the only thing that matters, the only thing that matters is fearing God, taking Him seriously, 
and then keeping His commandments, doing what He says. Both of those are absolute musts if we're ever going to have satisfaction and meaning in life. Now, unless somebody looks at that and says, well, I'm not really sure that I want to do that. You know, I kind of think, and it's kind of been my observation, that living for pleasure, living for self, living for, for money and things, that hey, that's what really makes life good. Well, Solomon's going to be very quick to jump in there and he's going to say, hey, don't do that. Don't make that mistake because there are actually powerful reasons. There are some strong motivations for you to follow my advice and to actually live life in this way. Number one, Solomon says, that fearing God and keeping His commandments, he says, first of all, it is the whole duty of man. Now that's how the English standard renders that. The New American standard renders it because this applies to every person. The New King James says, for this is man's all. The contemporary English version says, this is what life is all about. I think all of those translations, they all actually work together to say to us that fearing God and keeping His commandments, that's what we were created for. That is our ultimate purpose as human beings. That that's all that there is to life. That is what it is that makes us whole. You know, all these other pursuits that we have in life, all these other things are only partial. They only bring partial, temporary sorts of fulfillment, whether it's work, or whether it's money, or whether it's another human relationship, whether it's play, whatever it is. But this right here, this fearing God, keeping His commandment stuff, this, this is everything. This is in fact what fills up that God-shaped hole that exists inside of our hearts. If you go back to Ecclesiastes, would you look in chapter 3? In chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes and in verse 11, Solomon says this, look in the middle of the verse. He says also, God has put eternity into man's heart. That's an amazing expression. That's a beautiful idea. That there is a place within each of us that God has built a place within the human heart that each person, each and every one of us, we sense our need for, for something. Something. Something outside of us. And that something is the only thing that can really fill us up and make us complete. And of course people try to fill in that hole with with all kinds of other things, whether that is their job or their hobbies or their recreation or maybe they turn to alcohol or maybe they turn to drugs or to stuff or to fornication or whatever it is to fill that hole up. But of course, none of those things can ever truly satisfy. And so our hearts cry out for something more. Something that has eternal meaning. Something that's able to meet the deepest needs of the soul. And the truth of the matter is, it's not just religious people who have that kind of longing and have that sense about them. Do you know the famous actor Jim Carrey? A couple years ago, Jim Carrey was being interviewed by a publication called The Talks in which he began to discuss his recent exploration of that big question, why are we here? Something that he just reached a point in his life where he just really wanted to explore that and to think about that. Why are we here? It's something he had wrestled with for a long time. That is, until he had what he called 
an awakening, kind of an epiphany. When the interviewer then asked him to describe what brought about this epiphany, this awakening, Jim Carrey said the following. He said, I guess, I guess just getting to the place where you have everything that everybody has ever desired and realizing that you're still unhappy and that you can still be unhappy is a shock when you've accomplished everything that you've ever dreamt of and more and then you realize it's not about this. Do you hear what Jim Carrey is saying? He's saying, I did a lot of stuff but I still feel incomplete. Jim Carrey says, I did all these things that everybody said, everybody assured me was going to really fill me up, but I still feel empty. Jim Carrey is essentially saying, I had the full, complete Solomon experience, and I came to the same conclusion that he did, that it's all vanity. I gotta tell you, I really wish Jim Carrey would read Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Because right there is what he's looking for. Right there, he would find that the purpose of his existence, the purpose of your existence, the purpose of my existence is to fear God and keep his commandments. Only a relationship with God and living in God's way, only that will make us whole. And to say otherwise is like trying to untie yourself from your shadow. It goes everywhere that you're going to go. And in the same way, God has made us to know Him and to serve Him, and we cannot escape that. It is the very reason for why we are here. Which leads then to that final statement that Solomon makes at the end of Ecclesiastes 12 about how God will indeed bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Do you still need motivation to fear God and to keep His commandments? If doing what you were created for, if that's not reason enough, well, how about this second thing? How about motivator number two? And that is that judgment is coming. You know, all of us, all of us, I think, want and desire justice. You know, if there was not justice in the world life would be really, really frustrating. And in fact, whenever justice is missing, we do get really upset about that. Because in our heart of hearts, we cry for that which is wrong to be judged and to be punished. We want the world to run and to operate fairly and equitably. We long for evil to be accounted for. We want the books to to be balanced, to be squared up, if you will. And so what we want is we want to see judgment administered fairly. I mean, after all, if there is no judgment, then there is no God. Or at least there is no God who is worth obeying and listening to and worshiping and doing what He says. That wouldn't be a God worth serving. In fact, without judgment, really really everything just falls apart. I mean, come on, if there's no judgment, then why should I take God seriously? And if there's no judgment, then why should I be concerned about doing what He says? But what Solomon affirms is in fact what all of Scripture affirms and that is that there will be a day of reckoning. That judgment is coming. Whether we like that or not, that's happening. In fact, listen to the words of Jesus. In the New Testament in John chapter 5, Jesus who 
arguably speaks about judgment and about the things that will happen on the other side of this life. He speaks about that more than anybody else in Scripture. In John 5, listen to the Lord, John 5, 27, He says that God has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and they will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. One day, maybe sooner, sooner than we even think and realize, one day life will be added up and it will be scored and we will all be judged as to how we live during our short time here upon this earth. And the absolute certainty of that event with heaven and hell hanging in the balance, the certainty of that event, it ought to motivate us it ought to motivate all of us to fear God and keep His commandments. That's what life is all about. And that's what Judgment Day is going to be all about. And so, the great question is asked, Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is life all about? That is a question that some of the greatest thinkers and some of the greatest philosophers throughout all of human history have wrestled with for centuries upon centuries. And Solomon, the wisest man in all the earth, even he wrestled with it. But at the end of his life, he took a quill and he dipped it in ink. And then he pulled out a piece of papyrus and he began to write down on that piece of papyrus Two short sentences that ended up answering that question definitively and finally and it provided the most epic conclusion to this book that he authored. The question before you and I right now is what are we going to do with this information? You know, you read Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, you now know, if you didn't before, you now know why you're here. And furthermore, you also know what comes next. All that matters now is for you to take God seriously and to do what He says and let that be the ending to your story. Can we pray about that? Pray with me, please. Our dear gracious God, our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning deeply impacted by the words of your servant Solomon. Father, we are awed by his wisdom and by his insight. Help us, Father, to see that we need not make the same mistakes that he did throughout his life, but that we can choose to learn from his shortcomings and the marvelous realizations that he finally came to in the end. Help us, Lord, to take you seriously. Help us, Lord, to do as you have instructed us. Help us to understand that this is the very purpose for which we have been created. And help us, Lord, as well, to live with a greater care and concern for the judgment that is to come. Father, we come confessing that all too often we lose focus of what our purpose here is on this earth. We get sidetracked with all of the vanities of this life. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to keep first things first. In all of this, we thank you for your Son,
who authored our salvation and provides us with the direction that we need every single day of our lives. And it is in His name, in the name of Jesus, that we pray. And amen.